0: Church,
1: tonight we're beginning a new worship series. We're calling this one Pentecost 1 because the season after Pentecost is long. There will be Pentecost 2 and Pentecost 3 and probably Pentecost 4 before it's all said and done. But for tonight, we're beginning a six or seven week, I don't remember, series called The One of God's Own Choosing, which steals a line from that Martin Luther hymn, A Mighty Fortress. That hymn is a favorite of mine. It presents a robust, muscular Jesus who is engaged in spiritual combat for our sake. We'll be looking over the next several weeks at stories from the opening chapters of Mark's gospel that deliver this portrait of Jesus. Compassionate, yes, but not exactly gentle, as he reclaims territory for the reign of God. I'm beginning in verse 16 of Mark chapter one. As Jesus passed along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught rebuked him saying be silent come out of him and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice came out of him they were all amazed and they kept on asking one another what is this A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons And the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed And Simon and his companions hunted for him when they found him. They said to him, everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Tonight's title Jesus does not negotiate with terrorists. If you were going to stage it, this section of Mark's gospel. You'd need a leading man with dark skin, a warm smile, and forearms all out of proportion to the rest of him from all those years of swinging a hammer and pulling a saw. A handful of supporting actors, sun-weathered faces and calloused hands from all those years on the sea. A beloved elder to play Simon's mother-in-law I'm thinking Felicia Rashad throwing side-eye as she comes to understand that her miraculous healing was at least partly about the patriarchy, being hungry for lunch. And of course, you'd need lots of extras to fill that Capernaum synagogue, lots more to crowd Simon and Andrew's front yard after dinner, You could probably CGI the crowds in the subsequent towns they visited after our hero's lonely night of prayerful planning. But the biggest decision you'd have to make as the director of this drama would be about the demons and the humans they inhabit. You'd need lots of both. Beginning with that first appearance in the Capernaum synagogue, just one single man with one unclean spirit who speaks of itself in the plural and makes the gospel's first weird confession of faith. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then, after that one... Lots more. Brought to Simon and Andrew's family home by their own families in hopes of finding help. And then so very many more as the hero's Galilean tour expands his influence and his reach. By the end of our reading tonight, the regular healing of regular sick folks has dropped out completely. It's just the preaching and the exorcisms that remain. Verse 39 of chapter 1, and he went throughout Galilee proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons, full stop. It makes a certain kind of sense as the only thing Mark has told us about Jesus's preaching is that he is proclaiming The reign of God. That is to say, he's declaring right out loud that God is in charge here, despite all appearances to the contrary, which is a not-too-subtle challenge to any other pretenders to that throne, which demons are in this way of imagining. I'll say more about that. In contemporary stories about possession by demons, human beings' bodies and spirits are weaponized by supernatural personalities that are vulgar, super strong, super scary. They claim a human being as their own and prove their presence by levitating the person's body or spinning the person's head around or throwing up stuff that's grosser somehow than regular vomit? None of that is described in the gospels reports of demonic possession. For the most part, Mark and his colleagues are very matter of fact about the need for Jesus to have exorcism in his considerable skill set because apparently there are people, lots of people, in need of that particular kind of help where and when he is. You cannot, as they say, swing a dead cat in Mark's gospel without hitting a few possessed people. Not that I would swing a dead cat, or a live cat for that matter. No cats were harmed in the imagining of this sermon. If demonic possession necessarily means the horror movie depiction of something, well, horrific, then how could there have been so much of that then when there is so little of that now? As I keep reminding y'all, I have been around this block a few times now, and I have never seen that Linda Blair-style masturbate with a crucifix trick, not even once. Sorry, I did not make that up. It's in the definitional 1973 movie, The Exorcist. Assuming that Jesus did not get around to exercising them to the point of extinction in his short ministry, what then do the Gospels depict when they show us crowds of persons who are in the grip of a supernaturally awful presence? I look to Jesus' own behavior in these stories for some help with that. As he's just starting out in the fulfillment of his call to be the one of God's own choosing, he's putting considerable effort into defining the parameters of his work, figuring out what he's meant to do next. You can see it when he gets up really early while it's still dark, Mark says, and leaves the hospitality of Simon and Andrew's home to pray in a deserted place. When the boys come looking for him, insisting that his public needs him, he announces a course correction. Even if they have not solved every problem in the place where they are, he says, they have to move on. Because the reign of God must be announced far and wide. Let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do, he says in verse 38. He simply will not be manipulated by the expectations of his disciples or seduced by adoring crowds or pressured to take on work that interferes with his primary mission. This messiah has boundaries, lines he won't let anyone cross. Which fits pretty well with the boss interactions he's having with those demons all along the way. He doesn't want to hear from them, doesn't want them announcing his name or where he's come from or what he's doing there. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him, Mark says in verse 34, because they would not respect his own discernment of the right time to tell the world who he really was. See, that's a feature of demons. They will out you before you are ready and damn the consequences. What I'm saying is, Jesus has a clear sense of his own boundaries. And the demons he's encountering are nothing short of trespassers. They are shameless about it. Eager to cross that line, breach the fence, ignore the will of the one whose life is truly at stake. That's true of how they behaved with Jesus. And I'm supposing that's true of how they behaved with the unnamed throngs who came for exorcism. The demons we are talking about here have trespassed into the lives of people who did not give permission and do not want them there and cannot make them go away on their own. So, for Jesus who is normally very respectful of other people's boundaries, asking permission before healing their diseases, for example, inviting but not insisting that some people come along as his disciples, for example, the casting out of demons is alarmingly non-consensual. This exorcising work is closer in kind to the stilling of a storm at sea than the healing Of a sick or weakened body. Indeed, Mark uses some of the same language for both. At the Capernaum Synagogue in chapter one, he rebukes the unclean spirit. Soon in chapter four, he will rebuke the wind that threatens to capsize the boat he's napping in. He'll likewise tell the sea to be still, the same imperative for warning the demons to. BE SILENT. This possession thing, I'm saying, is a storm, a chaotic and dangerous tempest that tosses your little boat, threatens to capsize your entire life. That gives rise to thought, doesn't it? What if the ancients, our ancestors in faith, were using this language of supernatural possession by an evil entity to describe something they could see but not quite explain? What if they had witnessed how a person's personhood could be breached by any number of storm-shaped compulsions that would infiltrate one's protective walls and once inside would happily obliterate the person's identity while their own power grew. What if some of those who brought family members to Jesus for exorcism had seen the light in their dad's eyes grow dim as he grew more and more dependent on alcohol? What if some of them carried loved ones whose chronic pain robbed them of hope and sucked them dry of joy? What if some brought spouses whose rage begat violence, dreading the next time they flew out of control, surreptitiously hoping that in proximity to Jesus, the rage would be expunged? What if some invited friends whose gambling debts were out of control or whose desperation for love led them to make foolish choices and get badly hurt again and again? Or who medicated their pain or loneliness or anxiety with any number of habits that caused more harm than good? The only thing I know for sure about that is that everyone who brought someone to Jesus in those early days had already tried everything in their power to make the problem disappear. I know that, not from the Bible, but because so many of the people I've loved over my lifetime have been overwhelmed by such things. I know that because so many of you love someone who has been swallowed up by something, some monster that moved in to your beloved without permission and now just won't let go even as it kills the host. I'm mindful too that we are growing in our understanding of how individual people can be weighed down, swallowed up by the heavy tonnage of oppressive ideologies that devour and diminish our personhood Black activists and authors have taught me so much these past several years, describing what it feels like to wake up every day with the weight of generational racism, generational loss and trauma sitting on their chest, how it worms its way into their own consciousness, possessive of their minds and spirits, such that they are not free even on the inside. And I'm growing in my understanding of how white supremacy and privilege have nested and laid insidious eggs deep in my own mind and spirit, such that all my righteous efforts at wokeness and allyship cannot root them out. I am saying, I am bound. I am possessed. It'll take an exorcism to cast it out and restore me to myself and the beloved human family. Here's the thing. When Jesus encounters this phenomenon, this reality that people can be inhabited by a wickedness that they don't want but cannot get rid of, he loses all sense of decorum. He yells at what they call demons to shut up. He keeps them at arm's length. He banishes them back to hell they came from. He does not negotiate with terrorists. He does not try to see it from both sides. He does not seek compromise or aim for the middle of the road. He just wants whatever it is, whatever is pretending to own, even one precious child of God Gone, And he's got the reign of God power to make that happen. Like the song says, one little word shall fell them. You might know that Galileo Church's annual budget for ministry is divided up by the various ministries in Jesus' life. There's a category for announcing the reign of God and inviting people in. There's a section for preaching and teaching. There's a section for eating and drinking with friends. There's a whole category for welcoming little children. These are all things we know Jesus did. And we figure that we, as the church is supposed to be the body of Christ, should be doing those things now. It's just that based on Mark's opening chapter, it once again comes to my attention that there is no category in our annual allocation of resources for exorcism. Jesus did it a lot, y'all. And as Teresa of Avila said, whose hands are his hands but our hands now. Something I come back to. That moment in Mark 1, 39, the last verse we read tonight where Jesus's ministry is reduced to its essentials, preaching God's reign and casting out demons. Listen, I'm thinking that those may not be distinct and separate activities, church. I'm thinking that wherever the reign of God is proclaimed, brought to life, wherever it can be demonstrated that God is in charge, getting what God wants, that becomes an exorcism of anything that is holding anybody hostage, keeping anyone from enjoying their full citizenship in God's domain. Any place where God's reign is operative, no demon can trespass its way in which means that it is incumbent on the church as Christ's body now to establish and protect boundaries of our own. We have to retreat from excess busyness to prayerfully discern our own sense of purpose in this world. We have to protect each other from being outed before anybody's ready and call each other by the name we are invited to use, not letting our assumptions become presumptive. We have to forcefully calm the storms of homophobia and transphobia, even the internalized ones. We have to become a place where the bonds of racism and white supremacy are loosed. Just as Jesus' own proclamation of God's reign was demonstrated in his power to exorcise, so our proclamation of the reign of God must be demonstrated in a liberative community of trust and belonging. The church that follows in Jesus' exorcising footprints, I'm saying, normalizes liberation by obliterating every oppressive power that holds human beings hostage. In just a second, we're going to sing this song that DeShay brought to my attention this past week. It's called, Jesus Be a Fence Around Me. It's a good one. It pleads for Jesus to protect us from harm, from anything that diminishes our humanity by trespassing uninvited into our lives. What I'm wondering is, what would it feel like to sing church be a fence around me? What would it be like to imagine ourselves protecting each other from the trespassers, helping each other Toward freedom.
0: Let's find out, shall we? Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them, we do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress, and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, Will continually send you thanks. Peace.